Good morning. We're glad you're here. My name is Pastor Milo, and I'm so glad to be able to share with you this morning what God has been teaching me this week. We are in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to get your Bibles and make your way there, if you're working in the few Bibles in front of you, that's a new international version. And so I'll be connecting with you this morning with that. If you're using an iPad or a phone, you can use a U version as one way to thumb your way to where we're at. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, this is one of the uh, premier passages having to do with marriage. We're going to look at the gospel and how it connects to marriage this morning. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the next two weeks, we'll deal with gospel and how it re- reflects itself in marriage and then in parenting as well. So if you went to Barnes & Noble, you would see truckloads of information on these two topics. It's a big deal. And, and the reality is, is that it, we're coming up empty at the end of the day, and so we need to be able to look and see what uh, Scripture has to say about it. And so rather than asking what other people have to say, even though there's some good authors out there, and we're gonna, I'm going to quote some authors this morning, we're going to come back to God's Word and see what God's Word has to say. Ephesians chapter 5 is the longest statement that we have in Scripture regarding marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives. I don't have to tell you, you look around the landscape around us, that the foundations of marriage are being pulled apart and eroding in our culture. I'm not going to lament on that today. We're not going to really spend a lot of time talking about that today because we have no control uh, in this setting over culture. We're not going to lament that. We're not going to deal with that. But we're going to address, though, is marriages within our churches. As we've talked about the unity of the church and the body of Christ, in the series we're calling Better Together, I'm going to just come at it with you say, marriages should be better within the church. Uh, We should be able to compare ourselves uh, to others and say, you know what, there's something different about those people there involved in the church or involved in Christianity or those who put their lives and align them with Jesus Christ, that their marriages look differently. To put it bluntly, I think that we've ignored Scripture. And so as we look at God's standards for marriage today, I hope that this uh, brings you to some realizations. Uh, Chapter 5 here of Ephesians is definitely countercultural to what was going on in the Greco-Roman world that day. Uh, they were self-centered. They were self-saturated. They were immoral when it came to uh, sexuality and marriage. The words on the page here provided a startling contrast uh, to the people that they were actually reading this to. I want to warn you from the very beginning, as we read through this, provide a startling contrast with the culture that we live in. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But at the 21st century, when it comes to marriage, what we're going to talk about this morning does not align itself very well with that. So we need to ask ourselves this question. So we're going to embrace that contrast. We're going to lean into it rather than ignoring it. Uh, First question, if you're going along with us, we've got these uh, inserts in your bulletins this morning to help you along the way. The question I want to ask to get us started is, what if healthy marriages were the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical way? What if healthy marriages were the very best way that we could communicate the gospel in a way that people could tangibly see the gospel being lived out? What if we did that? I want to talk to get us started about the importance of a foundation. I grew up in a home that was built on our property. My my grandfather, the way that he worked or the way that life was where we lived is we had a number of acres. We had three or four hundred acres on the family farm. And so my dad decided that he wanted to uh, uh, build on the, the family farm. And so my grandfather and his 
uh, wisdom. Uh, Dad picked this one spot where he wanted to build, and instead my grandfather said, you can have this spot directly across the street where I can keep my eye on you, basically, is what he said. Because there was a real nice piece of property with like a waterfall in the back, and there was everything, like, it was a really cool spot. And Grandpa said, nope, this is where your house is going to be, and I'm going to start. So the way that it worked, my parents got married when they were 19 and 20, and so before they could even really decide that they were going to move forward with this house, my grandfather and his friends and different people he connected started digging the basement for the house at the location that he wanted, regardless of whether or not that was what my dad wanted. But that foundation of that house was built. And as I was growing up, first there was a smaller house that was there, and then it was expanded, and we added more to it. And I remember, and sometimes you don't know if you remember it specifically yourself, or if you remember it because you saw it in pictures or in videos or reel to reel. Uh, but I remember uh, the, the foundation being built, and I remember putting all the uh, concrete walls in and, and putting uh, everything there. And as a kid, you know, taking that trowel and trying to figure out how it was done. But the, there was a bunch of farmers who put together this foundation at the end of the day. There was no engineers here. There was no uh, inspections done as to whether it was done properly. Uh, and so what happened was the foundation was laid, but uh, my grandfather decided it would be easier to bring equipment back and forth and to bring uh, soil in and that type of thing by driving down. He, they made three walls to the foundation, and the fourth wall they left open to drive equipment in and out, to pour concrete and that type of thing. And when they were all done, they built the fourth wall. What that ended up doing is over time, for the next 25 years that my family lived there, that even though it was all backfilled in and put together seemingly correctly, is you had this ramp that constantly allowed water to kind of come down the ramp and push up against that wall. And the whole time that we lived there, the wall started pulling itself towards us. <laughs> Mr. Don just put his hands over his head. Yes, that's exactly what happened. That wall was always just kind of pressing in on us. And there was all these different ways we had to remove it and then put it back in again. And, and the whole time, this wall was just kind of crumbling. Why? Because the foundation was put together improperly. So I want to talk this morning about our foundation. If healthy marriage is the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical way, then there's going to be some foundational things that we need to talk about this morning. If you will indulge me just to get us started so that we know where we stand here today. If you are 18, of, 18 or older, so if you're under 18, this does not apply to you. If you're 18 or older and you're single, would you please stand? I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm just trying to make a point here. If you're 18 or older and you're single, will you stand for a moment? All right. Good. All right. So we've got this crowd here. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I want you to stand because we're, everyone give them a round of applause for standing. That was, first of all, a big deal. Okay. All right. Sounds good. You guys are younger than 18, so you weren't supposed to stand. All right. Everyone sit down. My intent's not to embarrass you. I want to point out how important it is for us to get this right from a biblical perspective. Um, most counselors are starting to come to the point where they say pre-marriage counseling is not actually even the best scenario. Best scenario would be pre-engagement counseling. Why? Because if any of us who have done this type of counseling, when someone comes in and they've decided to get married, they've set the wedding date, everything is in motion. They've got the church book. They've got everything settled in. And I've been in this situation as a pastor where you're talking to this couple and you're saying, wait a minute, there's some red flags here. We need to talk about some of these things. We need to think about 
you know, would you be willing to postpone the wedding? Would you, would you, you know, if we go through this marriage counseling and you realize that you are not connecting to one another, that you're going to call this thing off. And I asked a, a pastor this week who's uh, at retirement age, and he told me the same thing. He said, they never listen to you. Why? Because it, it's all, the, the horse is already out of the barn. And so those of you who are here this morning and you are single listening to a message on marriage, don't miss this because this is actually most important for you to hear. There's something for every one of us this morning. But I want you to hear and grasp the weight of what is going on here when we talk about biblical marriage. What if healthy marriages were the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical way? If you want to think about the four walls as a foundation, here's the first wall, the first foundational wall I want to share with you. If we're going to communicate in the gospel in a practical way, we would have a proper view of singleness. We would have a proper view of singleness. Now, I know I told you to turn to Ephesians 5, and you can stay there because I'm going to read this for you. I'm over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it says this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who were going to buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of this world as if it were not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Let's talk baseline here. We need to remember and understand that some of the most prominent characters in Scripture are single. Jesus Christ, single. Kind of an important guy. We need to, to focus on that. The Apostle Paul was single. And we live in a day right or wrong. I think that it's culturally the norm to be married. And sometimes that pressure, that expectation is put on us. And that should not be the goal. We need to be confident. You need to be confident in who you are. Be okay with your security and significance being found in Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul is teaching here is a significant difference between what is going on in the culture around him and what he's experiencing there. In this Judeo culture and the other uh, cultures that were there as well, being married was very important. If you were not married, it made the absolute value of family and being able to pass on to the next heritage, you know, pass that thing on. Uh, In the bearing of children, there was to be without family honor if you were not married. And there was no real lasting significance or legacy in the world unless you were passing it on through your heir. Now, Paul is taking that and he's pulling that apart and saying, wait a minute, your significance is not in the dowry that you get. Your significance is not in the, the land that you own that you can keep as your family. Your significance is to be found in Jesus Christ. In ancient cultures, a long-term single adult was considered to be less than a full human existence. That's what it was to be. If you, if you were single in that culture, the, you, was, you were less than the rest of society. That's a problem. And particularly, Paul is saying, you need to find your significance in Jesus Christ. Now, that's what's going on in traditional societies. They'd make an idol out of marriage or an idol out of that family dynamic. Contemporary society, what we're living in right now, is actually making an idol out of independence, of disconnectedness. See, the traditional motive for marriage has been the social duty, uh, the responsibility of taking care of family, or the status that comes with that. The contemporary motive uh, for marriage it would be personal fulfillment. And so the questions are asked, does this person make me happy? Will they make me more happy then than I am right now? And so this is obsession with the individual. We should be content in whatever situation we find ourselves finding full fulfillment 
in Jesus Christ. That is where our satisfaction is. In 1999, I graduated from high school, and as most people do, there was graduation parties to go through and a number of different things there. My wife was a year ahead of me, so she was a year ahead in college. She just shook her head at me, don't tell this story. Yeah, I'm going there. We're going there. Don't make eye contact. At a graduation party next to a bonfire, I decided because of an unhealthy view of singleness, an unhealthy view of singleness, so that all of my understanding of identity was going to be wrapped up in this, I got down on one knee, sort of, proposed to her and said, in four years when you graduate from college and we're both, and when I graduate and we're both through college, will you let me propose to you? She did the same thing any of you did, like, this guy has lost his mind. Like, we're in high school, we're at a graduation party, and you're a fool. Because all that you have is wrapped up in this idea of being connected to one another. And it didn't take long, a number of months later, that she found, she was like, this is over. Like, this is not going to work. And it wasn't until later that I came back with an understanding of what singleness was to be able to come back and say, okay, now... Now they understand who I am, and you understand who you are and your identity in Christ. Now can I ask you to marry me? That was like three years after that. Because of that distorted view of singleness. And I think that that happens sometimes in our churches. I do want to put uh, the idea of being married as an important piece of the puzzle. But our identity has to be found in Christ. And because I bought into the fact that marriage, as I will talk about today, that it demonstrates what the body of Christ is to look like, I bought into that, but I missed the point where I had to know who Jesus Christ was myself and find my identity in him myself. And so I was the fool proposing in high school to somebody, and she was the one who said, you're nuts, I'm out of here. And I don't blame her whatsoever. Thanks, babe, for doing that. We must have, if healthy marriages are going to be the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical, tangible way that people can see, we must have a proper view of singleness. That's the first wall. The second foundational wall is this. We would submit to Christ as the cornerstone. That's a fill-in. We would submit to Christ as the cornerstone. So now we are in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we start moving through this passage, I'm immediately drawn to two different realities from this text and from this passage. The first reality is I've got a wonderful wife. Many others would echo this statement in this room to say, uh, I've been married now to Aaron for 15 years in December. And she's a wonderful, wonderful person. And so that's the first reality I have to come to grips with. And the second reality is we're going to move through this. I have to come to the grips with I'm a pretty terrible husband. In relation to what's being laid out here, I'm falling way behind. And as I go through this passage, and there's uh, David Platt is one of them who says that as, as I've wrestled with this this week, it's a difficult passage to prepare and to go through and realize the, the, the weakness that you have in your own life. And so what I get to do here is to, you know, to share that with you so that at least you can share in misery uh, with me. Uh, there's, there's strength in numbers in that. But as we look at this and as we talk about a difficult passage, yes, uh, there is something that needs to happen there. 
Uh, we need to be reminded that the most fundamental, the most glorifying, the most basic thing about marriage is that it is the essential ingredient in every marriage has got to be that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It's got to start there. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. 27, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. All right, there's a big chunk of scripture there. We're going to dig into this a little bit. But if we are going to understand this foundational principle, we would submit to Christ as the cornerstone of the church. That means that everything must line and align with him. That everything must line up. That's what a cornerstone is about. That everything shoots down that line. Everything is plumb and it goes through that. My grandfather and the other uh, people he collected to pour the foundational walls of the house that I grew up in, those lines were a little bit shaky. Why does it have to be this way? Why do we have to be lined and aligned with him? Well, because at the root of the thing, you and I, we are untrustworthy when it comes to lining and aligning our lives. We, we actually are not very good at this. Here are three realities that we need to come to grips with. First one, you will never marry the right person. You will never marry the right person. The quest for compatibility, and there's, you know, the commercials are out there looking for your compatibility. You're going to score 90 out of 90. Sure you are. Okay. The quest for compatibility in our own strength is impossible. Here's what Duke University ethics professor, his name is Stanley Haar, says this. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that there is someone just right for us to marry. And if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. We never know who we will marry. We just think that we do. Or if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we entered it. You will never marry the right person. You, you and I have this assumption, and those of you who have been married much longer than me, 15 years is just like you getting up in the morning. Like 15 years was just you getting warmed up and you've doubled or tripled or quadrupled that. And you're saying, yep. That's not the same person that I married. There's the same things there, yes, but that's not the same person. You will never marry the right person. That's the first mistake we make. Second mistake is when it comes to aligning everything, we can't trust ourselves because it's not as easy as it looks. When you look at some of those marriages, when you, you, you don't understand what that couple has fought through, the wars that have gone on for them to fight to keep the marriage together. You don't understand what that takes. And every time we go through marriage counseling with a couple, Aaron and I do this together, uh, we talk about the things that they will be up against. And they nod and they smile and they say, yeah, that'll be fun to have those battles. No. 
It's during the pre-marriage counseling. They, they're interested in hearing about all the wonderful things that marriage is. And they'll hear about the debates that you have. And you share as many stories as you can. They say, well, that'll be fun. And it just isn't. However, in crisis, because I also get to do that as well. And it's an honor to be invited into those moments when a marriage is on the brink of divorce. And you're invited in and say, this is the situation that we're in. They don't want to hear about the, pra- the, the easy like, situation of this is how everything's going. Well, no, they need some practical advice how to understand one another. How to rebuild lines of communication. How to find a way to connect again. Or the choice is simply to end it. It's a very different scenario. Tim Keller calls this collapse an apocalyptic romance. An apocalyptic romance. He says this, In our day, something has intensified this natural experience we call marriage and turned it toxic. It's the illusion that we will find our true soulmate. Everything wrong with us will be healed, but that makes the lover, the romantic relationship, that makes them into God. And no human being will ever live up to that. It's a toxic relationship. It's an apocalyptic romance. The idea that this person will live up to all of your hopes and dreams and everything that you imagine. And and you keep putting that bar out there. And you know what? They will fail you every single time. And those who have gotten through that and fought through that, it looks easy, but it's not. And they'll tell you, and they'll tell you the stories behind it, and you still, you'll nod and you'll smile, and you don't understand it until you've lived through it. The only way that it's going to work is if you align and line everything on him. Because you're not going to marry the right person. It's not as easy as it looks. At the end of the day, you're going to marry a stranger. At the end of the day, you will marry a stranger. Most people enter marriage through the in-love experience is what Gary Chapman calls it. He argues that the in-love phase can be uh, a two, uh, two to three month experience or a two years to ten years experience. But just like Cinderella's costume ball, midnight strikes at some point. We use this expression when we're talking about our kids. If we're over at a friend's house and things are getting a little bit hairy and, you know, like they no longer are inviting you to stay any longer. You know what I'm talking about? And we will say stuff like, okay, our kids are turning into pumpkins. It's time to get on our way. What happens at midnight in that fairy tale? At midnight, things change. At midnight, the layers of glitter are taken away and the real, unvarnished you is left standing there, unfiltered for all to see. You're now a pumpkin. You're exposed. Your mask is stripped away. That's what marriage does. Marriage is also more inescapable relationship than cohabitation. Uh, Living together doesn't get there. There's a lot of things that an unmarried couple gets when they live together. But they certainly see each other up close and they see some things there. But each party knows that the other one does not have the same claims on her that would happen in a marriage. There's still that opening because they don't merge their entire lives, their whole lives, their social, economic, and legal lives. They're not entirely aligned together. They walk away at any moment with relatively few complications if they just don't like what they're being told. It's not the same. And as long as people tell you that it's the same, oh, I'm just trying to to learn this person so I don't make any mistakes and marry the wrong person, you're a fool. It just doesn't work that way. This is really what's being said. I love you so much 
that I want to keep some options open in case this doesn't work out. And it's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding what love really is. I want to keep my options open when if you disappoint me somehow, then I can step aside. And that's that apocalyptic romance, as Tim Keller calls it. You will always marry a stranger. No matter what, at some point, the clock will strike midnight. You will always marry a stranger. Aaron and I got married. We were young when we got married. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I went in the military. And at that point, the military strips away all of your identity as it is. But I lost the ability to go by my first name, which some of you know is Nathan. Um, that's my first name. And, and no one ever called me that anymore. Now I was Wilson or Recruit Wilson or Maggot. That was basically... Uh, what I went by. The church that I got involved in outside of the base, there was two other Nathans at the church. And so somewhere along the way, I realized that my middle name was unique. And if I went by Milo, people would remember it rather than if I went by Nathan or my last name, Wilson. Those were names that were used a little bit more regularly. So I started going by Milo. So it became a confusing thing. It's a, just a practical way to say when we got married, Aaron married Nathan Wilson. But as time started to change, we, we were living in that area, living on the base, and, and she was working at a school nearby, and she introduced me to all of her friends as Nathan. And all of my friends knew me as Milo. And so anytime that we saw each other, it was very confusing. Uh, the joke that Aaron would always tell is that I, I got married to Nathan, I had kids with Milo. <laughs> we moved about three years into being married, and I had to, had to like draw a line in the sand and say, hey, uh, I'm Milo. Like with this new, this new church we were going to, new city we were going to, like this is a new start. Please call me Milo from here going forward. And at that, like now my grandmother calls me Milo, so I know I've arrived. Like it's, <laughs> it's taken a number of years. I'll tell you that, like, because in, in many ways, that's the description of you will marry a stranger. There are some things that are going to change, some significant things that are going to change. And the person that you married is not the person that you're going to be with 10 years from now. What if healthy marriages were the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical way? We would have a proper view of singleness. We would submit to Christ as the cornerstone. Here's the third foundational wall. We would leave everything else behind. We would leave everything else behind. Ephesians 5.31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This verse he is quoting directly from Genesis chapter 2. He's saying that God created marriage back in Genesis chapter 2. He just didn't roll the dice and draw some things up and think, you know, well, I wonder, maybe this would be a good way to go about marriage between a man and a woman, how could this thing look? No, instead, just like God ordained the rest of the earth into existence, he said this is what marriage needs to look like. He designed that man and woman would leave everything else behind for the sake of one another. If you come from a King James Version background, this is what I'm familiar with, is that you leave and cleave and become one. Spouses might need to be aware of this. They got to be ready for this. I was in pre-marriage counseling right now, or even uh, what did I say I was going to call it before? 
pre-engagement counseling. You need to be ready for this. This is a legitimate thing. Leave everything behind. You need to leave the good things behind. You need to leave the bad things behind. You need to leave the ugly things behind. And you need to leave your parents behind too. I wasn't putting them in any of those categories. They need to be left behind. Leave everything else behind, it says. How else would you build oneness on brokenness? Anytime we do counseling, there's so many times, even in my own family, that we talk about these things. But how can you build oneness on separateness? How do you build oneness if you have separate bank accounts? I don't know how you do that. How do you build oneness if you have separate TV subscriptions? Or separate cell phone plans? Or separate house spaces? Men, you've got your man cave. Ladies, I'm learning this term. You have a she shed. Have you heard this? You can go, ladies, and build your she shed. And it's all about you and everything. And that's your space. I don't see that. I don't see that. How would you build oneness on separateness? Early in our marriage, I went to a church staffing conference, and they had a breakout on marriage. And that the essence of that discussion was marriage, you are a team. We are a team. And as we're going through this year, we are better together really aligns pretty well with that. But one of the things that we picked up at that conference that just stuck is that Aaron and I are a team. And that means that there's no situation that our extended family particularly is ever going to get me to say something negative about my spouse. There's never a situation where my mother, my father, my sister are going to get me to say, yeah, well, that's because Aaron, blah, blah, blah. Why? What comes healthy out of that? What comes good about that? Ladies, if you go to your mother and complain about your husband, then any time that your husband does anything, they hear all of the data that you've given them to be mad at their son-in-law, which is why son-in-laws typically have a struggle to have a relationship with their mother-in-law. It works both ways on that. Mama's boys, you have the same problem. It's not going to help you in any way. The two of you are a team. Always take the spouse aside. If you think that you're going to get me to say something bad about my wife, you're just not going to. We married at age 20 and 21. I don't recommend that for most situations. That's just the way that God worked in our lives. Most people that I've counseled at this age have no business being married. But if you're a little bit older than that when you get married, or even if you're at that age, you've lived life a little bit, you've understanding what happens when, when you move out of the house and start to get your own things and manage your own household and, and you you've start to do things on your own for quite a while. You figure out what it looks like to be on your own and to make your own way in this world. For us, a second conference really shook us up. It was at a church planting conference. This is just a number of years ago. I think it was four years ago. And there was a marriage counselor that, that basically put everything into the word us. He called it the power of us. And he kind of assimilated what we're discussing here this morning. It means that us no longer looks to parents for approval. Us no longer makes decisions. You know, it's no longer you and me. It's us that are making decisions. And he told good stories that went along with it. This counselor, he was a um, Civil War buff. And at some point, someone in his church, after being in his church for 20 years on staff of the church, 
uh, they kind of organized together and got him uh, tickets to go to the Gettysburg reenactment. And apparently, I've never been there, but to see a battle reenacted. And there's all these like areas that you can stand all the way back and see what's going on. But if you pay the top dollar, you can be on the front lines and the bleachers right in the front, the best seats in the house to be able to see this thing reenacted as it was there at Gettysburg. And this Civil War buff loved that. And so he told us, us decided to give the tickets to someone else. Us decides to walk through the mall even though I don't want to walk through the mall. Us decides to purchase a vehicle and us decides that the vehicle is the right choice. And so I don't get to decide later, well, you made me make that decision because it's no longer you and me. It's us. Us decides to not go out tonight and stay at home. Us decides to make payments on a new car. Us decides to eat out tonight rather than staying home. When us makes a decision, us stands by it. What if healthy marriages were the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical way? We'd have a proper view of singleness. We would understand that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We would leave everything else behind. There's a fourth foundational wall. We would love and respect each other. Verse 32. This is the profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Again, it's all wrapped up in what Christ has done for the church. 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Recently, there's a book published that reduces basically all marital conflict down to these two words. You know them. Love and respect. It's by Emerson Eggers. And Here's the scenario that he gives, and maybe this will trigger your memory. Kelly wondered if her husband, Steve, would remember the 10th anniversary. Some years he had forgotten, but this year he remembered. He had found just the right card, and he was sure it would be a great anniversary. But when he handed her the card, she beamed from ear to ear. But then after she read it, her countenance turned sour and dark. It's not bad, she said, for a birthday card. Steve stiffened at her anger. He meant well. What he had written on the outside was great, but what he failed to read was what it said on the inside. Hey, it's an honest mistake, he said. Give me a break. An honest mistake? You just don't care. You are so unloving. Now he's miffed. He says, give me a break. You buy me a birthday card on our 10th anniversary and you expect me not to be upset? I'd rather you hadn't bought me any card at all. Feeling disrespected, he coldly said, fine, I'm going to the office. Love and respect. What he describes here is the crazy cycle. And if you've read the book, you understand where I'm going with this. The crazy cycle is when the husband feels disrespected, it's especially hard for him to love his wife. When the wife feels unloved, it's especially hard to respect her husband. Some of you are nodding with me. That, you're agreeing with me, that doesn't mean that's necessarily a good thing, but it's true. The opposite is also true. The energizing cycle, a husband's love will motivate his wife's respect. And a, wife, <coughs> a wife's respect will encourage her husband to love. What if healthy marriages were the very best way to communicate the gospel in a practical way? What if it made it obvious because of our marriage that the gospel was present in our lives? We are loved. 
We are better together. We need to understand that. We need to come to grips with the fact that God loved us. The commitment that he's asking us to make one to another is what he did. He was fully committed on the cross. When Jesus looked out and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Certainly he's in a moment that didn't feel very loving or lovely. It was a commitment. And it went further than that. We are better together. This is not just an illustration that Paul is using so that we can understand marriage. No, he's saying when he quotes Genesis 2, he's saying this is God's design from the very beginning to give us an illustration of marriage the way that Christ loves his people. The marriage relationship from the very beginning of time was designed to be God and being pictured in human form so that he could see it. God is saying to the world, you want to know what it looks like for my son to love his people? Look at marriage. Look at marriage and you'll see a picture of the gospel. I want you to soak this in. Scripturally here, Ephesians 5 is telling us that wives give a picture of the church to the world. Wives give a picture of the church, God's bride, for the world. Husbands give a picture of Jesus Christ for the world. Let that soak in for a minute. Wives are a picture of the church for all to see. Husbands are a picture of Jesus Christ for all to see. Your marriages, our marriages in this room, each of us gives a picture of the world of Christ's relationship with his people. It's an inescapable picture. And I don't mean whether you choose to make that picture or not. Scripture is teaching us that is the picture. Your marriage, my, my marriage is giving a picture to the world. It's demonstrating it right now as is the way that it is right now. This is what it's demonstrating. The question is not whether we are giving a picture. The question is what does that picture look like? What does that picture look like? So we're going to pray this morning. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to go to Christ. We're going to have a time of prayer. We're going to respond to Ephesians chapter 5 in this way. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? If you're single here this morning, if you're single, I pray that you would consider what it means to be single scripturally as you are thinking through what it means to have your identity found in Christ. Those of you who are not single, would you pray for that single person this morning? That their identity would be found in Christ so that when they do look and when they do search, they are find something entirely different. They're not searching trying to have someone make them happy or fulfill them or to fill in the gaps that they don't have. No. They are completely satisfied. You are completely satisfied through Jesus Christ. And marriage will demonstrate something entirely different. There are many who are looking to be married this morning. I pray, Lord, as that search is there, that they're looking for someone who also would, would say, I want to find my identity in Jesus Christ. If you're a child here this morning, you should pray for your parents. 
pray for our parents here in the church, that we would be a place where mothers, fathers, husbands, wives love each other, respect one another in a way that exemplifies Jesus Christ. Pray that Randall Church would be a place where marriages are emulated that are beautiful. Parents, pray for your children. Pray for the children across the aisle to say, those, those kids, the framework that they see, the marriages that they see demonstrated for them today will determine what type of marriage they have 20 years from now. Accept that responsibility. God, we accept the responsibility that that takes to demonstrate holistic living of the gospel in our marriages. A message like this and a text like this, there are those of you here who are hurting this morning, who have come through a, a broken marriage. You're on the brink of it. You've lived in a home where mom and dad did not do loving things for one another. They did not respect one another. And there's a lot of hurt that is associated with a passage like this. Lord, we pray for your peace and for your healing here this morning. Lord, we pray that as your word has come alive, Lord, that it would, it would touch hearts to say, that doesn't have to be me. And I will find my complete satisfaction in you. In the end of the book of Acts, the comforter, you say the comforter will come, Lord. I pray that the comforter would be here this morning in a very real and tangible way that your loving arms would wrap around those who are hurting this morning. There's some here this morning, Lord, who have fought through the battles. They've got marriages that emulate you for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years and more, 70 years some. Lord, I pray that they would understand the gravity of that. The only reason that they're in this position is because you have demonstrated yourself again and again and again. Lord, that you have shown yourself to be true. If you're in that spot this morning, I pray that you would take the responsibility of what it means to mentor the next generation, to demonstrate for them this is what marriage looks like. And we don't know how we got here except for Jesus Christ. There are many, many in this room that are looking for someone like that. It says, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. I pray, Lord, that there would be those who would step up to the challenge to say, I'm here to help. I'm here to show you what it means to live a marriage that exemplifies you. Lord, as we pray for the community around the church, we realize that there are many who don't see marriage lived out this way. We know that this is countercultural. We know that this is not easy, but we also know that this is what may be the most tangible way for someone to see your face. For those who are single, Lord, I pray that this is what they would be pursuing. This type of relationship that said, I want a marriage that will exemplify you. For those who have been married for a number of years, Lord, I want a marriage. It hasn't been here this way. It has not been this way yet, but today's the day that I'm going to give it all to you, Lord, and find our identity in you, and our marriage will demonstrate what you did for your people, the church, your bride. We love you, Lord. We thank you. 
In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.